Just going to want to give you a little bit of preview. Next week, we will start into our kind of more normal routine. Um, many of you know that we've been doing an exposition through the book of Acts, and we plan to pick that back up with the missionary section of Acts, Acts 13. Um, and so that'll be our, our ongoing exposition uh, as we study uh, week by week together. And then a couple years ago, we started doing something where we will have once a month have a series that kind of interrupts our regular exposition series. And I mentioned to you when I did the State of the Church Address at the beginning of the year that this year what we're doing is that monthly series uh, will be a series on the covenants of the Old Testament. And so next week I'm actually going to start that series. We'll be doing kind of an introduction to the covenants and um, give you some food for thought, some things to think about. And uh, that'll, so that'll be next week. The following week... Um, Dr. Bruce McAllister will be with us, and we'll be having a full day. I have to explain that to you, um, kind of focusing on our stewardship of the church. And then the following week, um, which is February 23rd, is when we resume our Acts series, so Acts 13. Um, So we'll be back and forth between Acts and the Old Testament uh, with our Covenant series, but I look forward to um, those studies with you um, coming up here real soon. So how do we reach the world? Well, this video, I think, has, has sparked in us a reminder of what we've been talking about over the last couple of weeks, and that is our theme for the year, that, that when we think about the idea of, of reaching the world, it can be overwhelming. So, so how do we go about that? I mean, how do we think about this, this huge harvest field? And I think the idea is for each of us to think about our own individual responsibility to reach just one person, to to spiritually reproduce ourselves in just one life and what God is calling us to do in that regard. Well, when you think about it, there is an overwhelming challenge when it comes to global missions. We are now somewhere over the 7.7 billion mark in the world's population. Estimates, even the most generous estimates that that include the highest number of possible believers in Christ, would put us somewhere over 5 billion non-believers, non-followers of Christ in the world. I mean, that is, that is more than I can even comprehend. When we start getting into the... I mean, I can understand a million. When we start getting into the billions, then it, it, just, it just boggles the mind. Um, do you realize that the United States actually has the fifth largest population of non-believers in the United States. So, so what do we do about that? I mean, when we think about the responsibility to win the world, when we think about the responsibility of sharing the gospel with, with every creature, what do, we, what do we do? Well, a little bit of history, I think, is in order. Over the years, if you t- kind of take a survey um, over the last several hundred years of Christian history, there's been a lot of different thought about this topic. Uh, There's been a lot of thought about the the strategy that goes into world missions, and specifically since the modern missions movement, uh, the last couple hundred years, there's been specific thought about strategically reaching the world. But as, as the United States has become more secularized, there has even been discussion in recent decades about, about just how do we reach our own backyard? How do we reach the United States? Well, <clears throat> one of the proposals that has 
um, been tried over the years and has had some measure of success is reaching people in, in mass. Large numbers of people coming under the sound of the preaching of the gospel. This is the, the evangelistic campaigns, which actually can trace their roots back even before that to the, to the old tent revivals, which actually go back before that to, eat, to the harvest times when people would gather together even for, for sometimes a month at a time. They would, they would camp out, right? So harvest would be done, harvest would be laid up, and then people would gather to the, to the tabernacle, they sometimes would call it. And it would be this, this building that was erected just for the purpose of the preaching of the gospel. And, and believers and unbelievers alike would bring their family, they would bring food, they would, they would camp on the grounds, right? That's, that's where we get, you've, you've been around churches for long, you've heard dinner on the grounds, right? That's, that's kind of the history of it. And so people would come to these, these huge meetings, they would hear the, the gospel explained and, and people would come to Christ. That was a different day. That was a different era. Now make no mistake, the gospel is still powerful. The gospel is the same gospel that it was before. The preaching of the word is still the same preaching as it was before. But there was a day when our society was largely Christianized. It was a day that over half of the population attended church weekly, not to mention those that would attend sporadically, once a month or, or on holidays. People were regularly in our culture under the sound of gospel preaching. But, of course, we all know, we don't have to pay too much attention to realize that society has shifted within the last century. Instead of many non-believers kind of expecting that, that people will go to church, there's been a large shift away from Christian activity, in particular attendance at special meetings and, and worship services and the like. So, so should we try to recover that? I mean, should we try to, to bring back a day where people attended church and came to special evangelistic meetings? Well, as we think about that, I, I rejoice that there was a day in American history that even unbelievers sat under the sound of the gospel. But here's my question. Where in the Bible do we find unbelievers commanded to attend worship services? I mean, I have a really hard time making a case from Scripture that it is it is important for unbelievers to attend worship services. You say, should they not? Well, I rejoice that many times they do. And in fact, if you go to 1 Corinthians, you actually see Paul talking in detail about tongues, and one of the points that he makes is that unbelievers will be coming in and observing. Right? He makes this case. So he, he, he supposes, he assumes that there will be times that unbelievers will be in our midst as we worship. But the entire tenor of the New Testament seems to be to me that the gathering together for worship is for believers. Now, we preach the gospel. Every week we, we explain the gospel because we want you to know that if you bring your unbelieving friend or neighbor to sit under the sound of, of the word, that they're going to hear the gospel presented, even if it's just a, a, a little two-minute summary of the gospel, right? In fact, in fact many of you can, can almost quote <laughs> my, my, 
my short version, my abridged version of the gospel, right? Because I say it almost the same every week, right? I talk about the fact that what? We're all sinners, that we are all condemned because of our sin. We're separated from God at birth and by our continued rebellious choices. And because of that, you and I deserve separation from God, not just from this life, but in the life to come in a terrible place called hell. That's what you and I deserve because of our sin. But the good news is that Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, came from heaven to earth. He lived a perfect life and he died as a sacrifice, not for his own sin, but for your sin and mine. He was buried, he rose again the third day, and when he rose again, he indicated that he has the power to forgive sin for all who will come to him in faith and repentance. Faith, that is the the dependence on Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Repentance is the other side of that same coin, turning from my way, my sin, my self-dependence to depend on Jesus Christ alone. And if you will come to Jesus Christ in faith and repentance, He will make you right with God. He will restore you through His own righteousness being placed upon you. That's the gospel. That's the gospel that we preach. We preach it every week, and and we preach it every week for a couple reasons. First of all, as I said a moment ago, I want you to know that if you bring your unbelieving friends or neighbors, they're going to hear that. Number two, I I say it almost the same way every week. Why? Because this week at work, when somebody says to you, well, explain the gospel to me real quick. (laughs) It's like, well, I'll just quote what Pastor V says, right? So that's, a, that's, a, that's a third reason, but the, but the second reason, but the third reason that we do that every week is because we as believers need to rehearse the gospel. So all of that to simply say this, unbelievers will come to our worship services and, and we rejoice that they do. But I would just, I would just venture this, that, that perhaps the worship service is not for the purpose of evangelizing the lost. Now, don't misunderstand. Uh, some, someone has, I explained this to someone some time ago, and they misunderstood that I didn't believe in evangelism. I, I think if you know me for very long, if you hear my preaching for very long, you know we believe very strongly in evangelism. What I'm simply saying is that I'm not sure that's the purpose of the gathering. This is part of the reason that so many churches have gotten a little bit off track when it comes to the worship service. They have designed an entire worship service that is the intent of which is to attract people to hear the gospel. C.H. Spurgeon lived almost 200 years ago and said he was known as the Prince of Preachers and he was embroiled in a controversy called the downgrade controversy. It was the beginning of what we see now fleshed out in the church growth movement or the seeker-sensitive movement, and its implications are still being felt 200 years later. And this is what he said in the midst of that controversy. He said, the fact is that many would like to unite church and stage, cards and prayer, dancing and sacraments. If we are powerless to stem stem this torrent, we can at least warn men of its existence and entreat them to keep out of it. When the old faith is gone and the enthusiasm for the gospel is extinct, it is no wonder that people sometimes, excuse me, people seek something else in the way of delight. Lacking bread, they feed on ashes. 
rejecting the way of the Lord, they run greedily in the path of folly. And so many churches are pursuing an entertainment model, and their, their biblical justification for it is, this brings people into the sound of the gospel. Well, I would simply say that the attitude of the New Testament, and you can study this out for yourself and, and disagree with me if you'd like, but my understanding of the New Testament is that we come in, we gather for worship, we go out for evangelism. We, we gather for worship, we go out for evangelism. And so we continue to be the church as we go out, as we, as we reach our friends and our neighbors, as our lives have impact on them. I would just say that the proposal of having more evangelistic services, uh, our worship services being more evangelistic, holding special meetings when it might not really be the best strategy, biblically speaking. So another thing that has been proposed over the years as one of the solutions to our problem is there just are not enough preachers. There are just not enough people that are, that are giving the gospel full-time. What we really need is we need to, to have more people in full-time Christian service, as it is called. Our leaders need to be doing more for the cause of the gospel. Well, I don't doubt that it would be a good thing that we have more people going into the ministry. I don't doubt that it would be a wonderful thing if we saw more young men surrendering their lives to preach the gospel. But, but saying this is, is kind of like saying we need more generals in the army. Right? The, the, the ones who, who fight the battles, I mean the ones who, who really interface with the enemy are the ones that are they're the, they're the boots on the ground, right? They're the, they're the troops, the, 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 if, if we can use this terminology, the, the everyday Christians. And, and the problem is that we somehow think that the men are reading this book right now about, about the importance of our work, right? And the importance of our, our daily activity and how that, that we are serving God in that respect. The problem is that we have this kind of two-tier system that has been taught to us by, by Christianity. That like, you know, there's, the, there's the, the guys that are actually playing and all the rest of us are spectators, no, we're, we're all part of the ministry of giving the gospel to each other. And so, while these points are, are perhaps true, that it would be helpful if we were evangelizing people in our service, it would be a wonderful thing to see more people going in the ministry. I'm not sure that that is the entire, entire solution, biblically. And so then, we say, well, what kind of programs can we do? Right? And this is what the church has done really over the last several decades of very aggressive evangelistic campaigns, uh, either attractional campaigns, let's, let's have a big festival and get a lot of people here so we can hand out tracts and we can give out information and, and not saying that there's anything, anything wrong with that. Uh, or, or let's have a, a, an, a, you know, a big name evangelist in and get a lot of people under the sound of the gospel and the preaching all of these things may have their place, but I'm not sure that they are the solution. And in fact, if we look at the history of what has, what has worked, and we're not going to leave it as just what works, all right? The, the, hang with me, all right? But if we, if we look at it, do you realize that 17% of believers have been converted through an event? 
some sort of an evangelistic event, a, a, a something that the, cor- the church corporate did as an outreach event. Now, v- depending on what study you look at, it varies from study to study, and I think to some extent it has to do with the way they count, but estimates range from 75% all the way up to 90% of people who were led to Christ were led through a friend or acquaintance that gave them the gospel personally. Three quarters at least, and perhaps as high as 90% of people who came to Christ did so because of a friend or acquaintance that shared the gospel with them personally. Now, think of your own testimony of coming to faith in Christ. Think about how you came to know that Christ would save you through faith and repentance. What vehicle did God use in your life? All right, there's a couple categories here, right? There's the the event-based, right? And there's the relationship-based. Someone that you knew personally explained the gospel to you, all right? Are you thinking about that? Have you put yourself in one of those categories? I'm just curious. I know some of your stories. I don't know all of your stories. How many of you came to Christ, you came to Saving Faith in Christ through some sort of an event, some sort of an outreach or evangelistic event? Really? Nobody? How many of you came to Christ through the personal testimony and witness of someone that you knew personally? Okay. (laughs) I mean, in this group, at least, it holds true. Do Do you see the point? And I really believe that part of that is because this is the effective way that God has chosen. He's chosen his own people. Life-touching life, we call it around here, right? Let me, let me kind of explain this to you a different way. Suppose there were two gifted evangelists, right? I mean, everybody thinks in our modern day, everybody thinks... Billy Graham, right? Like big campaigns, lots of people coming, the gospel going forward, all of these people coming down the aisle. Suppose I took two gifted evangelists that were, that were particularly well-formed in giving the gospel to people, and suppose those evangelists preached every week of the year, and a thousand people got saved every week. I mean, that would be great. We would be praising the Lord. Right? After 16 years of ministry, oh, I changed my, I changed my uh, slide, but I didn't change my notes. Um, after 10 years of ministry, we would see just a little bit over 1 million converts. And we would praise the Lord. I mean, uh, uh, someone's ministry that, that you know, spans a decade and we see over a million people saved, how long would it take us to reach the world at that pace? Somewhere around 7,400 years at that pace. And I didn't account for population growth in that. I, I probably should have, should have had our mathematicians do this section. But uh, all right, then you could do the exponential thing and all this. But, but okay, so, so 7,400 years to, to reach the world with, with two gifted evangelists. Take, on the other hand, two personal evangelists. People who have adopted a philosophy of each one win one, and then each one lead one, right? We don't, we don't take them, give them the gospel, put a notch on our belt, and move on. We actually now disciple that person. 
We, we teach them in the ways of Christ as we're told to uh, by, the, by the Great Commission. So suppose that these two gifted evangelists um, focused on reaching two people every six months. That sounds ambitious, but not, not crazy. And they were discipling them. How long then would it take us to reach the world? Because you understand what's happening, right? The two people are each discipling two people, right? And then they are in turn discipling two more people, and I'm already out of fingers, right? So you now have the power of exponential growth. And if these people are committed to what we're talking about for our theme this year, each one reach one, and then each one lead one, that is to say they are discipling them, they are walking through the scriptures with them, they are teaching them in the ways of Christ, do you realize that, that doing that exponentially, we reach more than the population of the world in a decade because we're reproducing. I mean, this is the power of, of exponential growth. So why aren't we doing that? Well, a Gallup poll a few years ago indicated that of evangelical American believers, only 2% have introduced another person to Christ. Two percent. Now, I would say that that is probably not a statistic that holds true in our church. I see in our church an excitement, an enthusiasm, a joy in giving the gospel that is, that is heartening. But the point is simply this. I think that just from a sheer... Um, perspective of practicality, that, that reproducing ourselves, producing disciples, is really the solution to world evangelism. And so it's productive, it's effective. It is, it is realistic. I mean, as you know someone, as you invest in someone, as you get to know them personally, you have opportunities to have conversations, to invest in that person, to give them the gospel. Just practically speaking, you're more trusting of those that you know. There are these, these little bubbles of society, right, kind of subcultures. So most of you know I'm from a background of emergency services, police, fire, EMS, are incredibly cliquish. I mean, they're kind to outsiders, but they're still outsiders, right? There's this, there's this subculture that exists. And whatever that is for you, whether, it, whether that centers on your, your hobby or your occupation or whatever it is, you're part of a group that I will never penetrate. You're part of a group of people that trusts you, that knows you, that you will have the opportunity to give the gospel to that I would never have platform to do so with. And so from a very practical point of view, it's realistic. But of course, I can't, I can't go through all of this without making the point that I believe it's biblical. Now, I've alluded to this several times, but I want us to understand that, that we don't just do something because it works. The argument that just it works um, is going gonna, is gonna to lead us down a dangerous road. So I want you to consider a couple things with me. If you have your Bible, I want you to go to John chapter 4. 
Now, we think of Christ preaching to the crowds, right? I mean, we think of these huge crowds that are gathered. They're under the sound of, of Christ's teaching. And, and that is true in Scripture. Christ preached to the crowds. But consider for me that there were 12 people that followed him around closely, that he had an individual relationship with, that he poured his life into. Not only that, but he would take the time to talk with people individually. One of the, one of the classic passages is here before us in John 4. So you see, he sends his disciples in to the city, and he strikes up this conversation with a woman in verse, uh, verse 10. Jesus, uh, well, verse 9, the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it the Jew being a Jew asks, Drink from me, a Samaritan woman, for the Jews have no dealings with, with Samaritans. But why are you striking up a conversation with me? This is not normal in this culture for a Jewish man to speak to a Samaritan woman. And, and so what he does is he, he has a conversation with her, and of course we know the text very well. He talks about the, the water of life. He has a conversation with her about her own lifestyle. And then the woman goes back and does what? She personally evangelizes. Right? She says um, in verse... Uh, excuse me, I lost it. The 28, the woman left her water pot and then went her way into the city and said to the men, come see a man who told me all things ever I did. Could this be the Christ? Could this be the Messiah? Right? What does she do? She goes and gets her friends. And now you have this, almost a city that is converted because Christ had an individual conversation with one person who then in turn went and reached those that were within her sphere of, of influence. And so Christ... This city comes to Christ, not because Christ you know, stood at the well side and proclaimed, preached the gospel loudly at the top of his lungs, but because of a conversation with someone. You're in John, so let's just go back a few pages to John 1 and look at the calling of some of these apostles. Look at verse 40. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Now, we all know Peter real well, right? I mean, he's kind of a big name. But do you realize that his brother, Andrew, was first to follow Christ? He found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. You see the same thing in the next section with Philip and Nathaniel. So go down to verse 43. The following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So come see this one that is the Messiah. And this is the way that some of the disciples were actually called, by calling one another. Guess what I have found? Your testimony is as powerful of an evangelistic tool as there ever is. I have found this. I have found the one who has changed my life. I have found what it means to, to be converted, to be saved, to come to Christ, to be made in right relationship with God. And of course, we know the Great Commission passages. We know these passages, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, 
Mark 16, 15, Luke 24, John 20, and Acts 1, 4 through 11. And so I would actually note for us in these great commission passages that this is both a church corporate responsibility and an individual responsibility. That's how I understand the Great Commission passages. Certainly we are given these responsibilities as a, as a church, as a, as a body of believers, yet at the same time, it's implemented by individuals. And so this is what we see in the book of Acts. Now, we've been studying through the book of Acts, so this is going to be familiar territory to you. But if you go over to Acts chapter 8, and I pointed this out when we made our way through this passage, but I want to reiterate it. Acts chapter 8. Then those who were scattered. Now, do you remember the context? Who was, being, who was scattered? Really, most of the church, right? The apostles were still in Jerusalem. Do you remember this, this discussion that we had in Acts 8? But, but many from the church are going out. So those who are scattered went everywhere, I'm continuing in verse 4, preaching the word. Now, as I explained to you before, we tend to think of the word preaching as the, the formal instruction that takes place behind the pulpit, but that's not necessarily what this word means. It's the idea of proclaiming. They're going out proclaiming the gospel everywhere they go throughout the known world at that time. They're being scattered because of persecution. And in Acts 1 through 8, this is what we see the church spreading the gospel. And in fact, this, uh, this pattern continued for centuries. I want you to notice, and I pointed this out uh, when we were studying through Acts, but I want to um, note it for you again. Acts 2 those who gladly received the word were baptized and they were added to the church. Again, Acts 2, the Lord added to the church those that should be saved. Believers, Acts 5, were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of men and women. Now, we, we have a shift that takes place in Acts 6. Luke stops using the word added and starts using the word what? Multiplied, right? Remember my illustration from before? Like, this is people reaching people. This is no longer the, the public proclamation. Now, I, I, please don't misunderstand. I'm not saying there wasn't mass proclamation of the gospel in the early chapters of Acts. There was clearly that. I mean, 5,000 people were converted into the preaching of Peter in one day. Right? So it's not to say that there was no public proclamation of the gospel, but what's happening is now those who are part of the church are now multiplying the gospel. We see it in Acts 6, uh, later in Acts 6, the word of God increased and the number of the disciples multiplied. It's an interesting shift in language that, that is employed by Luke. Then the churches were now multiplied, Acts 9, and the word of the, God, uh, the, word of the Lord grew and multiplied, Acts 12. And so what's happening here is, is, it's, is there's a shift. There's this initial wave of public proclamation of the gospel, and then those who are converted are now giving the gospel individually. And as they scatter, this takes place, this multiplication of the gospel. Now, we have to take a quick little peek into Christian history to realize that actually the pace of the growth that we see here in, in Acts 9, 10, 11, and then as it goes out to the world, starting in Acts 13, that's where we're headed, right? That pace continued for a number of years. In fact, at the, at the current, at the pace at which the gospel was going forward, 
in the chapters uh, of the, the recorded history of Acts, if that pace had continued, the entire world would have been converted by 500 A.D. If that continued growth, that exponential growth, that multiplication had taken place, the entire known world would have been converted in, in about five centuries. But something happened. What happened? Anybody know? Around 313. Does that help you? Oh, yes, of course. The conversion of Constantine, right? And I'm going to put conversion in quotes, right? Because if you read it, what you discover is Constantine uh, adopted the form of Christianity. I'm going to editorialize here just for a second. In large part for political and military advancement. There's no genuine conversion there. And actually, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go one step further in editorializing and say, actually, the, the, the supposed conversion of Constantine was probably the worst thing that happened in church history. Because they introduced this entire category of cultural Christianity. Right? Those that were Christian. And by that they meant they were part of a Christian culture. They followed the Christian form. They worshipped in the, in the Christian way, but there was no genuine conversion. Right? This was not that they were re- repenting and believing. It was that, well, that's okay. The kingdom's now Christian. Right? So you had this entire category that was created by Constantine when he declared the entire Rome, all of Rome, as as Christian. You cannot be declared a Christian. You must come to faith and repentance to be a Christian. But Constantine declared the 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 the, uh, the, the entire um, empire Christian. So there were many who had never been converted by the gospel, who were part of Christianity now which meant that now there was this two-tier class, right? There was the clergy and the laity. I mean, this is what ushered in the Dark Ages. Is this whole idea of, well, there's, there's, the, there's the educated, there's the knowledgeable, there's the spiritual, that's the clergy. They do the real work of ministry, and then there's just, you know, the laity, The clergy-laity split was not part of the original church. You don't find that in the book of Acts. You find gifts given to the church, pastors, right, evangelists. You find offices like deacon. You find leaders amongst the church, no doubt. But you do not find a clergy-laity split. Like, those are the guys that are responsible for advancing the gospel, And then there's the rest of us who just show up on Sunday. And then, of course, because of that, there was also a class split that ushered in a host of abuses. And this is the Dark Ages. So, what we see today, this attitude that there's kind of a two-tier class in Christianity, was not original. It, It was not as it's always been. Each believer in the early church was transformed by the gospel of Christ. He came into the church 
through his profession of faith in Jesus Christ, through, through giving his allegiance to Christ and evidencing that through baptism, not because some emperor had declared it to be so. Each believer in the church then felt a personal responsibility, a, a privilege even, of bearing the gospel to others. And so at, at the way things were going prior to 300, the whole world would have been evangelized in five centuries. But what put a stop to that is the, the two-tier system, this clergy-laity split. I would submit to you that if we get back to the model where each one reaches one, each one leads one, each one is following someone, that we would be much closer to the biblical formula, the formula that we see in the book of Acts and in the early centuries of the church. And so I said this last week. We talk about reaching the world. How do we do it? How do we win the world? Well, you all know the phrase, right? How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Like, how do you win the world? You win the world one soul at a time. This should give us um, a burden. It should even give you a little bit of an ex- a little bit of an extent the uh, the philosophy of our church. That, that we put emphasis on personal evangelism, on building relationships with people, about engaging in our community in such a way that, that we have opportunity for the gospel to, to, to give to those who are within our sphere of influence. We will do things from time to time that are attractional, right? Events that we can invite people to. We, we're, we're not against those things. But that's not our main diet. Our main diet is emboldening and encouraging and equipping the saints to go out and do evangelism throughout the week. And so it is important for us, as we emphasize this year, to really simplify discipleship that each of us are reaching someone. We asked you last week, who is your one? You may know who that is. You may still be praying about who that is. But, but pray that God will give you that one that you can give the gospel to, that you can see come to faith in Christ and you can pour yourself into, that you can, you can lead them. Take opportunities to have co- gospel conversations. Maybe it's just a couple minutes. Maybe it's just some questions that you answer your coworker or, or some time that you take to, to get to know your neighbor just a little bit better. What are you doing to pray towards and to reach one? How do we win the world? Well, you can't win the world. I can't win the world. But what we can do is our responsibility to win one. One soul at a time. Each one reach one. God, help us. Lord, we know that you have called us to the daily task of giving the gospel, and we pray that we might take that responsibility seriously. I pray, Lord, even this morning as we consider what we can do this year to reach one person, that you would convict our hearts, show us how we can more faithfully give the gospel to others.